welcome to What Happened to You, the podcast that interviews footballers of the past, today, about their interviews from the past. Don't worry, it will all make sense when you listen. On this episode, supported by The Set Pieces, we talk to former Doncaster Rovers, Derby County, Nottingham Forest, Southampton, Sheffield Wednesday, Everton, Sheffield United and Huddersfield Town winger Terry Curran about his super focus interview for Shoot Magazine from around 1981-82. You can find the original interview on our Twitter feed at WHTYPod and on our dedicated channel over at The Set Pieces, www.thesetpieces.com. Full name? Edward Curran, known as Terry Curran. Birthplace and date? Kinsley, 23rd, 1955. Height? Five foot ten and a half. Ten, five foot ten. And do you still weigh 12 stone, five pounds? No, I'm about nearly 15 stone now. But I cannot do any exercise because I've got really bad knees and I've had my ankle pinned and fused. Oh, curse of the footballer, that one, isn't it? It is. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Terry. How's things? Well, other than the uh, coronavirus, uh, quite well, really. I'm enjoying um, my retirement and, you know, I'm 65, coming up 66. So, uh, just relaxing and enjoying uh, end of my lifetime now. Oh, you've got, pl- you've got plenty of time to go. Don't worry about that. Well, we never know, but I hope so. Yeah. Uh, well, we are, we are looking at your shoot interview from around 1981-82 today. And I've got to say, you look resplendent in uh, that Sheffield Wednesday blue and white striped book to kit. Uh, you crouch down on your haunches, holding a, holding a mitre football in your hands. Uh, and of course, you've got the big hair and moustache, uh, which was a bit of a trademark of yours. Well, I don't, for some unknown reason, I'd got curly hair and I just let it grow. You know, but growing up being a George Best fan and him having long hair, I wanted to be, I wanted to have long hair, but obviously his one straight well, mine was naturally curly, and that's the only reason why I um, had long hair. And I tried to grow a beard, and I didn't have, I didn't have the strength to grow a beard, but the, the task came through. But other than that, that's the reason why I had long hair, and uh, I tried to go, I tried to go a beard, but I just couldn't, you know, I didn't have the. Uh, I've got smooth skin. I've still got smooth skin, really. <laughs> right, well, let's begin, shall we? And we'll kick off with your birthplace, because that also covers a couple of other questions that Shoot asked you about uh, in this interview uh, from around 1982. Now, I, I know nothing, pretty much, about Kinsley, other than there's a Greyhound track there. Uh, and you've listed Greyhound racing as one of your favourite other sports, along with uh, tennis and snooker. Uh, and also walking your greyhounds as the thing that you enjoy doing on your days off. So are you still interested in the dogs and the racing? I am. Uh, obviously, with this COVID, you can't get down to the to the meetings. But the, the dog track itself is owned by my eldest brother and his partner, uh, Keith Morell. Oh, wow. OK. Excellent. So they, they've had it since 1986. And I nearly bought it with my eldest brother, but I, I finished up buying a nightclub uh, with my other brother, Bernard. Wow. Okay, well, uh, you know, you're well covered there for a, for a day out anyway, a day at the grounds, and then uh, celebrate the winners at the nightclub afterwards. Yes, that's right. Um, well, apart from yourself, uh, you named Morris Setters of Doncaster 
as the biggest influence on your career. Now, Morris famously went on to become Jack Charlton's number two during Ireland's success in the 80s and 90s. Um, so tell us about Morris and, and how yourself and probably the Irish lads too are in, indebted to him. Well, it's a funny thing because I didn't get into football until I was 18. So really, I just come off as, you know, from really playing local football, street football, and any type, any uh, type of football I could play when I was a kid. You know, whether we played two a side, one against each other, me and my brother David, or I was playing in, you know, w with the uh, older boys uh, on a Saturday and a Sunday. That what had happened? We'd we'd had a we'd had um, a game against Halifax U team, right under eighteens, and we beat them um, three 0 I think I scored a goal or a couple of goals in that, and then we played. Um, Doncaster Rovers, Durban's 18s, and we beat them. And the the uh, the Halifax, George Mullall offered me a contract there and then. And I said to him that I would, I promised that, we, you know, we, we go to uh, Doncaster and play them. So after the, after that game, you know, I'll come and sign for you. But then uh, Maurice said to, me, said to me, look, why didn't, uh, I want to have another good look at you. And because um, I'm really keen on signing you, but I just want to have another look against uh, I played a couple of reserve games for them, and then they offered, they offered me a contract. But I'd already I'd set off to go and sign for Halifax, George Muller, and George never forgave forgave me really because I promised him I'd go and I'd sign for him. And usually, when I say that, I usually keep I usually keep to that mark. Oh. And um, I'd set off and got about halfway there to Halifax. I did, I was in the car with one of my brothers and and, and a guy called Sammy Middleton. We were in his car, and I said, "Stop the car! I'm I'm going to sign for Doncaster." And and they and both of them were a bit astounded what I was saying, but I said no, I want to go back. I want to sign for Doncaster, and uh, at Doncaster um, things took off really, really quickly. You know, within within a season, twelve, fourteen months, um, I was transferred to Nottingham Forest. You know, uh, the great man brain club bought me. So I'll always appreciate Maurice Setters for uh, giving me that first contract and. Uh, making me a professional footballer. Yeah. Well, that's obviously one of those sliding doors moments. Who knows if you had gone, what would have happened if you had gone on to Halifax and, you know, it's all, it's all ifs and buts, isn't it? It is. Yeah, you're right. The thing is, any, everything is ifs and buts when you become a footballer. You know, I mean, I thought I was going to go into great things at Nottingham Forest uh, and it set off like an house on fire. Then I got a serious knee injury. You know, what puts a lot of players out of the game, you know, crucial yeah. ligament. Um, I did come back from it, and um, but by by time I'd done that, I'm not saying by time I'd done it, I'd, I played a couple of games which helped them to get back into the old first division when they, they were having a bit of a bad time for us. But the knee itself did take it longer than I anticipate, anticipated to uh, to get over. Um, yeah. But eventually I got over it, and... Uh, Everything turned out for me in my career, really, barring, you know, giving the bad injury at Forest. And obviously, Forest went on to win uh, two European Cups, League Cup, uh, League Championship, you know. But the thing is, even on that, Brian Clough tried to buy me back three times. Yeah. So, you know, that's how highly uh, Clough rated me. And yeah. that's, you know, that's not paper talk. They, they were facts. That's him phoning me up and, you know, and asking me to go and, uh, and, and play for Nottingham Forest again. 
Well, you mentioned that you didn't really get into pro football till you were 18. And in, in this shoot interview, uh, it asked you uh, what you did before you were a player. And you said that you were a paint sprayer. Um, so how, how did doing a proper job and civilian life suit you? Well, the paint spraying, I, when I first left school, I did a couple of little jobs. I worked on a ground, a ground stadium and I worked at uh, Empire Stores. But my, my wage there, I can remember my first wage at £5.75 and they, they paid you at half past 11 <laughs> uh, on a Friday morning. And I remember the guy who, gave, who got me the job, uh, Neil Tabbin, his, obviously his nickname is Archie, we used to call him Archie. And he said, I'll get you a job here because the paint spray was only about £3.75. So that was £2 more. You know, back in, what, 1970, wasn't it? Something like that. I'd be 15 when I left school. Mm. Uh, 71, something like that. Anyway, uh, at half past 11, I opened the wage packet. I, I said to Archie, I'm going home. He said, I've got you this job. I said, I'm not working here for £5.75. But the paint spraying, uh, I'd had to go to college in Leeds uh, on a Wednesday. Um, and I really liked it. I really did like the, the, the job. But... My, my other mates were earning like £10 and, on building sites and things like that. So uh, I packed that in and I did one or two other jobs, you know, on building sites. And then when I signed for Doncaster, the first thing Maurice Setters did in the summer, he, he, he said to me, he says, right, I'm, I'm going to put you on a building site to build you up. Obviously, they, they, they were giving me stakes two or three mm. times a week in, in my digs. But I think the, the reason why he put me on the building site, it wasn't really to build me up. It was so they didn't have to pay me through the summer, you know. But obviously, little clubs like Doncaster, little clubs like Doncaster, didn't have much money. Yeah. You know. So once you sign that contract, you know, from July to July, uh, they have to pay you all through the summer, you know. So, but uh, I think that's the reason why Morris put me on the building site more than anything else. Uh, well, you've already mentioned George Best, uh, and you've um, mentioned him here in the interview as your boyhood hero. Um, and there's no need to ask why, of course. He was a, he was a genius on the field. Uh, you were often compared to him on and off the pitch, uh, which is a great compliment. Uh, how accurate do you feel those comparisons were? The, the thing with George Best, he got every mortal thing. I mean, I wasn't a good head of a ball like he was, you know, um, and I wasn't anywhere near his level of football. You know, I, I would never compare myself to George Best, but he was my idol. But when I say that, I mean... I, Eddie Gray, I used to love Eddie Gray as a footballer, mm. you know. Uh, what was it, Stevie Kinder, all these players, Alan Hinton, you know, they're all great players, wingers, Charlie Cooks of uh, this world, Cliff Jones, I used to love all watching all, all of them play. Mm. But I was a striker more than anything else. Uh, and I wanted, when I say a striker, I wanted to play, uh, had the freedom to go and play, not centre forward, but, you know. Yeah. Uh, wanted to roam like George did and, and, and whatever he did on the football field I, I would try to uh, copy you know mm. not like George, not as good as what George did but you know uh, it gave me great pleasure because I did find it easy to go past people you know but uh, the problem is when you lose the ball with the managers some of the managers not with Cluffy because he used, to, he used to love me and encouraged me to go and do it but Jack at times you know if you lost a ball good absolutely ballistic with you you know uh, and it's little things like that what can um, disrupt the opposition they're going about your own team but it disrupts the opposition because when you've got a, a player what can run with a ball and create openings for other people and create openings for yourself create goals uh, at the same time and maybe score goals 
you know, it's got to be an advantage to you. But your teammates have got to be aware is, yes, sometimes you may not pass, you may overdo it. But if they're close enough to you, they can pick the ball, pick the balls up. But when you look at the football that some of these teams play, they play this high-pressing game. You know, if you, if you put that into your game and you get, you know, you get your people like your George Best and your Eddie Grays and your Leighton James and your Charlie Cooks, they, they could be a big influence on that team. And, and, and they have done it. And, and Cook at Chelsea were a prime example. Eddie Gray at Leeds was another prime example. George Best was another prime example. Uh, after the European Cup, the team started to age a little bit and maybe George had lost, not lost his way with the game, but he got um, other things on his mind, maybe women and partying and things like that. So um, it, was a it was a big disappointment for me when he packed in the game, you know, because even to this day, you know, it's only opinions. We know Messi and Minaldo were absolutely great players and Cruyffs and Zidane's and just hundreds of them, hundreds of them. Uh, but George will always be my idol. I mean, I've seen them all. And I always think when you look what George did with his lifestyle and uh, the pitches he had to play on and the type of training we mm. uh, we had to do, we, we did. Uh, and not looking after the bodies like these modern day players do. Uh, he'll always be my favourite player. And he'll always... And, I, and I'm honest with it. I don't just say that for sake of saying it, for an argument's sake. People have their opinions and I get that, you know. But when people ask me my opinion and I write about it, you know, George is my favourite player. And it's not because he's my favourite player. It's, I just thought he was the best player I'd seen. Yeah. And it is, it is unfair, is it, to compare any player or any team yeah. even from one generation to the next. They were just the best at that time. And, it, you know, it's about how yeah. you remember them and how you feel about them. And, yeah, who knows, in 30 years' time, we're, as you said, we're going to say Messi and Ronaldo were the greatest, but in 30 years' time, there'll be there'll be somebody else. But they will, Mark. You are you are 100 right on that, and, and it's right. And it's we shouldn't compare them. We should we should look at it and analyze, uh, not analyze it. We should appreciate how good these players are in any era, because it is an hard game when people are trying to stop you. You know, because you are playing the. The foot, you're playing with the football with your feet, not with your hands or anything else. You know, so to produce that type of skill that they do produce, you know, it, it, it is an artistry and it is, you know, it, it, well, I find it fascinating and I do appreciate those type of players. But I mean, I don't try and compare them to each other. I look at it, George, I think, it, for me, in my opinion, you know, he's the greatest I have seen. But I love to watch Messi. I mean, I could I could watch him all day. Maradona, you know, the amount of stick Maradona got, you know. Yeah. So everything changes. The pitch has changed. Um, the fouling has changed, but it's more pulling and holding and shoving and things like that now compared to kicking. And you know, so um, I'm glad I was around to see them all play. A lot of them. I'm I, I'm so pleased I was around to see them all play. Um, in this interview, uh, Shoot caught up with you in the in the early 80s and you were playing for Sheffield Wednesday, your boyhood team. Uh, and while you were still only in your mid-20s, you had been to a few clubs, most notably at Nottingham Forest, as you said, Derby County and Southampton. Uh, we'll talk about the famous managers a bit more uh, that you played under shortly. Uh, but I'd like, you ask, I'd like to ask you a couple of things. Um, firstly, was the draw of playing at Hillsborough so persuasive that you had to drop down from the first division to the third? <sighs> You see, uh, 
the thing about Sheffield Wednesday is there were two catches to it. I always wanted to play for them. And I said I would play for them, but I didn't want to play for them at the end of my career. And sometimes it's the right thing to do for your career. Mm. Um, but I'd seen great players there, the Jim McCallyogs, you know, Swans. Uh, I didn't see, obviously, didn't see Derek Dooley, uh, Alan Sun Sunley, uh, players, Alan Warboys. These was these were all my idols when I were when I was growing up. I mean, it says in that magazine that I was a Man United because I was a George Best fan. They put that down. I was a Sheffield Wednesday fan. Always have been after the World, after the um, FA Cup final when they got beat by Everton. So when when Morris asked me, he knew I was a big Sheffield Wednesday fan. And when he asked me, so why didn't I go and join them? You know, I weren't particularly getting on with 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 Laurie McManamy, and he's the only one that I've never really got on with out of all the managers I, I played under. But that's my again, that's my opinion. He is a lovely bloke, uh, and he does come across really well. It, we just didn't see eye to eye, and it, I, that was more to do with Alan Ball than anything else. Because Alan used to be with Laurie until I joined Southampton. Then we used to go off. We used to go off all over the place. Um, uh, to races, uh, to pubs and what have you. I mean, I don't drink, Mac, but I mean, Alan liked to drink. But were, we, we we did things together. We, we, we were like a married couple. We were in separate, uh, separable for about nine months until I joined uh, Sheffield Wednesday. But you know, I knew, I knew it was a massive club. I've been in that ground with over fifty, sixty thousand people in. So I wanted to taste that success, and I know I could. I know I could bring that success back. I know I was good enough. I mean, it's easy to play football with great players. You, when you drop down two leagues, when it's even, there's hardly any football played. Kicking is even worse, you know. Um, so I, I, I had it in me to, to want to go and play for, um, for Sheffield Wednesday. I yeah. got that burning ambition. I wanted to play. And, and I wanted to try and get back in into to old first division. And really, we should have done it. We're only a, a fraction of they're not doing it. Karen, this time it's Cutbush at his back. And Sabella. Oh, he's got away from them. Oh, and he does so, so well. He had three men around him. And he just came round in a wide arc. And no wonder he falls to his knees to take the applause of the Wednesday supporters. Um, and uh, well, sec second part of that question was, um, why do you think you ended up moving clubs so often throughout your career? Well, if you look at my career, it looks I've, I've had thirteen clubs, and it look, doesn't look too good, does it? From 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 my uh, or from from the fans thing, is it a problem? Never had a problem with training. I had one or two problems with the philosophy of football some managers played. Forest, I got a really bad injury. Uh, like I, like I said, said a couple of minutes ago, um, impatient and not want, uh, wanting to get back. I mean, Clough used to say to me, look, I, I, had, I finished the game with that injury you got, exact same injury you had. You know, I had to finish. You know, uh, they hadn't won for a month. I played against um, Eddieford and I scored the winner. Then we played up at Carlisle. And then he left me out against, uh, I forget what it was, but I didn't play the following game over played two away games and I went absolutely crazy with him and I tell him to put me on transfer list um, and even when I left he said to me he said um, 
you don't have to sign anyway. Just nuttle down, you will get back into the team. But I was impatient. Uh, but on top of that, Tommy Dock, who was the manager at Derby County, we just sold a player, uh, John Middleton, to Derby County. And the club had replaced John with, uh, obviously, one of the greatest goalkeepers uh, in his generation, uh, Peter Shilton. And John phoned me up and said, the Dock wants to sign, do you want to come and play for Derby County? Well, I'm not a player that wants to sit on the bench. And when you look at my career, a very, I've only played very few reserve team games. Oh. So it was a silly thing to do to leave Forest. Uh, but Derby, Tommy Dock, not only, I mean, he's the, he's the, uh, my name is the only one what never really, what, what never tapped me up. So the Dock had tapped me up for about five or six weeks to go and play for them. You know, um, so what I did, I, I went and asked for another move. And that's how I finished up to be at Derby County. But at Derby, the doc was trying to sell Jerry Daly to Bolton. He's always buying and selling players. Um, Southampton must have uh, made him an offer uh, that he thought was right for him. Uh, and so I was on to, on to Southampton. I forced myself away from Southampton. And Sheffield Wednesday was, a, you know, the right club for me because I wanted to go and play for Sheffield Wednesday. And I was settled there. And it was just a little bit of... Um, it was Jack paying the tax on £11,000 and he wouldn't do it. Um, what caused me to leave Sheffield Wednesday. Um, I, was, I probably would have finished my career at Sheffield Wednesday, but then Reg Brearley been tapping me up to go and play at Sheffield United and offered me a ridiculous amount of money to, to, to go play football for them. It's not as I want to play for Sheffield United, but I did. obviously I love, I love Sheffield and I love playing for the club I, I wanted to play, but it was the wrong move to go and to go and play at Sheffield United it wasn't the right move not being as popular as I was at you like I was at Wednesday so that was wrong so I worked hard in training um, I would never let managers get me down in a sense that if they try to run the legs off me I'd just go and do it you know because I think that's the best way to uh, to make them more angry than anything else but not one of them wanted to sell me barring the dock he's the only one what saw me the rest of them always wanted me to stay yeah. and like I said club tried to sign me three times after I left three yeah. times and that weren't paper talk that was uh, him phoning me up again because for six months it, when I was at Nottingham Forest he phoned, you know, he phoned me up about playing for them uh, and in fact I was would have gone to Leeds at some point um, because I, I hadn't been at Don I hadn't been at Doncaster that long when um he got the Leeds job, and Morris uh, Edwards, his scout, uh, had phoned me up about me going there. And I, I, I don't think I'd been there long, so they must have seen me playing a couple of reserve games, really. Because mm -hmm. Clough uh, was only there 44 days at, um, at Leeds. Well, your three years at Wednesday were eventful, shall we say, uh, and things started off well because there was promotion to the second division in your first season and you scored uh, 24 goals. And your popularity amongst the Wednesday fans cranked up another few notches with you taking to the recording studio to do a version of the Terrace classic, Sing in the Blues. And I've listened to it and you're not a bad singer, Terry. Um, or, or, do you, or do you owe the sound engineer a bit of a debt of gratitude for that one? No, again, 100%. 100%. <laughs> it's amazing. The guy who wanted to do it was a guy called Alan Woods. He used to be in Jimmy James and the Vagabonds. Mm -hmm. Right? Do you remember the Jimmy James and the Vagabonds? The name's familiar, yeah. Oh, have you heard of them? I've heard of right. them. Uh, 
but what they wanted me to do, because obviously after the boxing Boxing Day massacre, what they wanted me to in, in the lyrics, they wanted to change it to Wednesday win United lose. But in those days, there was a lot of uh, violence in football, and I, you know, I, I wanted to keep away from that. But when I say that, and then when I look at retaliating on a pitch, because for some unknown reason, football, if you retaliate on a pitch, it sets the fans off. When if you look at rugby, there's fighting all the time, and yet there's no fighting on the terraces. But I, I never thought about it. As, as you get older, you think, you know, it was, it was a silly thing to do because Jack would talk about um, people kicking you, right? He'd cut about kicking the opposition. And he'd say to our players, I want you to kick him. And I, and I still never thought about they would do the same to me. But so that's the reason why uh, I made the record through Alan Wood. But I wouldn't put that in the in the lyrics, you, Wednesday when United lose, because I didn't want to get down that road of um, um, of violence, because there was a lot of violence about in those days. But the engineer, what they can do in the studio, Mark, is, is absolutely brilliant. <laughs> but when I listen to it, it doesn't sound bad at all. I'm not saying it's brilliant, but it doesn't sound bad at all. In yeah. fact, in Sheffield, when I was playing, they used to have a, a charity day. And it raised £1,700 for the charity. Right, but I think it was it was a Sheffield United fan what uh, paid for it. He had the record blown up on air. If if the uh, if the uh, DJ blew the record up on the air, he would uh, donate seventeen hundred pound for the the charity. What the radio station were doing, so uh, it got blown up on air. But uh, no, it, it doesn't sound bad. I must admit that myself. It doesn't sound too bad at all. Um, you mentioned the, 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 the famous Boxing Day massacre, which happened uh, in the 1979 Steel City derby when Wednesday beat Sheffield United 4-0 uh, and you were the star man. Uh, and I imagine that performance still gets talked, of, talked about a lot by uh, the blue and white half of Sheffield. When you think about this, still, there's still talk about it today. And even when they've been in Premier League and, and they've won major, well, not won major trophies, they've won a trophy, which we haven't done for years, uh, when Ron Atkinson were there. So, I mean, there were 49,000, there were more than 49,000 because they were standing in those days. You could not move. You could not move. And it, it holds the record for um, the third division, you know, for the crowd attendance. The day itself was a, a marvellous day, obviously, with those winning United. Could have equalised a couple of times. Who knows how the game would have gone then. But... Um, the, the day itself and the atmosphere uh, to beat your arch rivals, which we hadn't played each other for a few years. So all that um, was great to, to, to achieve and to get one over your arch rivals, like I said. And from that day on, they they started to, 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 to fade. And, and we took off, I think we went on a 17-18 game un, unbeaten run. But a lot of those were draws, I must admit. But that was Jack's negativity more than anything else. Because, I mean, we had a, a decent team to go and win that league. But, you know, we got up OK, but it, that's all it were, OK. Uh, now, I, I read about you that um, there was a game at Oldham where you ended up having a fight on the pitch with Stein, Simon Stainrod, who, to be fair, seems to have been able to start a fight in an empty room uh, while he was a player. Um, 
so tell us about what happened there. Uh, how did it all kick off and how did it then escalate to a riot in the stands? Well, again, I mean, that was another scary thing. I mean, Simon Stamod, he's another player I, I admire. Uh, I mean, I mean, I think Simon's a couple of years younger than me, but when, you, when I saw him on television uh, or I played against him, I loved his, his way we played football. I loved the way I was, you know, we controlled the ball, how we used the ball. And he got that arrogance to, you know, to perform on a football field, you know, wanting the ball. And then when you get players who want the ball, it helps the team. But what had happened was I'd chased the ball back and the ball had gone out. Uh, and Simon is messing about with ball and I'm trying to get the ball because I want to get on with the game. Uh, Simon's either pushed me in the chest or punched me in the chest. And I've wrote, raised my knee to, to, to knee him between the legs. <laughs> I, I didn't catch him. I, I stopped myself at the last minute. Simon's gone down. And I've been sent off five times in my, in my career. Uh, and George Corkley has sent me off four, four of those. Uh, I can remember two of them, QP, Queen's Park Rangers and, and Oldham. And as soon as he got, he, he, he pulled the red card out, George, uh, Simon got up and winked. <laughs> but we were right in front of our fans. Mm. I don't know if you know, well, the olden ground in those days, uh, concrete on it, and there were obviously there's holes in part of the ground, and you could get your hands under under some of the concrete, and some of the lads obviously must have done that, pulled it up, and I'm not saying massive boulders, but there were, you know, brick-sized mm. uh, concrete thrown onto the pitch, and then they all spilled onto the pitch. Jack, Jack come out of the dugout, and literally were crying, and I mean crying, and he went absolutely ballistic with me. But afterwards, and he calmed down, and he, he said to me, it isn't your fault. You know, the fans shouldn't have spilled onto the field, and the referee should have looked at it and, uh, you know, counted for five, ten seconds, and, and, and because I, I didn't touch him, and Simon did jump up, but it was one of those things. But it was a scary thing for, for the fans, and little kids what's there, and women what go to football games, to see that type of thing. Mm. You know, it weren't a great thing, and I weren't, and I, and I, and I weren't proud of it. And I'm sure Simon weren't proud of it. And when the fans really look back at it today, they won't be proud of it. But it happens, as, as you know, in our days, it, it happened lots of times. You know, where fans were fighting in the streets, and some of these clubs got right reputations for it. You know, and it it, it, it weren't a, not a nice thing. So, and it's something I'm, I'm not really proud of anyway. Well, if we step away from the football for a bit, uh, and I'll ask you about some of the other notable answers you gave in the shoot interview. Um, you've named tennis star Ilya Nastasi and snooker wildman Alex Higgins as the sports people you admire the most. Um, both were mavericks, both entertainers, both adored, but ultimately both flawed. Uh, and if you throw in your favourite players that you've mentioned as George Best and Charlie George, um, I guess maybe you saw them as kindred spirits? Well... When Alex won the 1982 uh, Snooker Championship, I spent a few days with Alex mm -hmm. in the Grosvenor Hotel in Sheffield. And I've never seen as many tablets. It was an L-shaped room. Mm -hmm. I've never seen any, as, as many tablets on the uh, windowsill. Unbelievable. And bottles and empty bottles of beers and Mm. bottles of vodka and went down for the went down for a practice session and I went with him uh, and I thought I'm going to I'm going to back Alex to win this tournament you know 
because I, I would back him and I would back Ellie Nastasi to win the Wimbledon. It, that never happened. But the mm. thing is, I went down, I went down with Alex uh, and he bet to Steve Davis to win it outright mm-hmm. outright and I finished up backing that Jimmy White because of Alex I'm thinking well he must find and I didn't I like Steve Davis as a snooker player and he's a great guy he's a great guy but uh, I always found him boring to watch him play snooker you know mm-hmm. uh, and I can never believe and I said to Alex I could not believe it when he won it I said you he said I think I feel and he finished having £2,000 on um, Steve Davis to win it outright wow. And he always bet himself, Alex. He always bet himself. And that's the first time that he never did. But uh, he got that uh, charisma about him. When you went anywhere, people wanted to be with him and wanted to talk to him, wanted to buy him a drink. You know, he could have gone out any time in his life um, and not even bought drinks, you know. But then when he had a drink, become some keep some people jokers when they've had a drink and some become a bit more violent and... Alex got the, on the wrong side of uh, of the drink with him, you know. But he got this genius of, with a with a snooker cue and the balls. How he how he made those balls spin and pull them back. And his problem was he could never play safe at the right time. He would go for every shot, and it was things like that. And the, the way how he did it and how he entertained the fans. He, he, he you know he played to the fans. And Ellen the stars, he was the same tennis player. You know, the same as John uh, John McEnroe. Borg was obviously a great player. He knew when not to take the wrist shots, whereas the stars in and um, Vitas Gevelaitis, they would take that wrist shot and maybe uh, it cost them, well, it did cost them vital games uh, and, and finals to get to. But I was always a, a, a nearly Nastasi uh, fan at tennis because, you know, he got that shot you think to yourself, I'd love to be able to play that shot, you know. So they were my idols in, in other sports. Well, uh, they asked you uh, what your favourite newspaper was. Uh, and I've got to praise your honesty here. You said The Sun and more specifically Page Three. Now, that's very much an answer of its time there, Terry. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, my favourite my favorite people in, in, in life were women, especially when I was a young boy. Not as much now. I'm getting I'm getting older. But uh, I think, I mean, in those days, the, the two major pa- papers, what were in the football ground, um, were the Sun and the Mirror, mm. you know. And when I was playing at uh, Derby County, Charlie George did uh, an advertisement for the Mirror. We used to take the piss out of Charlie, because he used to come on the TV and he said, who's Nick my Mirror, you know, because uh, it was advertising the Daily Mirror. So the, the two major papers, what were in the dressing rooms in those days, uh, were the son and the and the lads had always opened it up for the page three girls who, who was in the who was on the front, uh, cover of that uh, page three at that time, whoever it was, Linda Lasardi, and all these girls, and, and obviously the, the lads used to be fancying all these women on uh, these page three girls. So I think that's the reason why I said the son more than anything yeah. else. Well, I but think at least that, I, tell, I did say I did say the truth about it. Well, that's it. Of the page three. 
Yeah. Well, in the same vein, um, they asked you who the person would be that you'd like most like to meet. Uh, and you said that it would be American actress and star of the original Charlie's Angels TV show, Cheryl Ladd. Uh, and I've got to point out that Cheryl's picture is placed in the top corner of this shoot article for reference. And she's looking very glamorous in a low cut red dress. Um, so anybody listening to this, go and check our Twitter feed out uh, to see that. Um, now, Terry, Miss Ladd would have been quite the wag for a Sheffield Wednesday player of the early 80s. Not half. Um, but I've had, a, I've had a few really good-looking ones, and uh, Susan George, I took her out a couple of times, you know. Um, but uh, she was my favourite at that time, Cheryl Ladd. Funnily enough, Susan George actually comes up in a lot of the other players' um, profiles that they say, you know, who would they most like to meet? Uh, and Livy Newton, by the way, Livy Newton, John, she was a popular among, amongst us footballers. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, well, your miscellaneous likes were playing well and scoring, which are pretty standard answers for yep. footballers. Uh, but your dislikes, um, bad managers, uh, should throw up some inter interesting stories. Uh, now, I'm interested to know um, who exactly you considered to be a bad manager because you played under some very well-known and successful men, as we've already discussed, such as Brian Clough, Laurie McMenemy, Toby Doherty, Jack Charlton and Howard Kendall. Um, how did you get on with each one? And, and I, I, how could you describe any of those, I guess, as, as bad managers? Well, when, when I, you see, that's my education when I said bad manager. What, I didn't like philosophies of the managers. Mm -hmm. And so when I said I don't like bad managers, I mean, in my day, there was, there was a lot of bullying around, right? Mm. Um, and the, the manager would pick on certain players. So that's when I was saying... I was trying to get across, but I used the wrong word as a bad manager. But I should have said the philosophy. I didn't like the philosophy on football. Cluffy was different because he, he was never fearful. I mean, I would care, was never fearful of any, any team you played. McManamy used to treat us young kids horrible. And he would let the other senior pros get away with it. Mm. But it was the philosophy. I mean, McManamy surrounded himself with, uh, with players like Alan Ball, Ted McDoodles and... Field boys, what would put have a big input on on, on the game. The dock, it got a great. We got great. We got a great team when you look at it. Uh, Nish, um, Langan, McFarland, Todd, Masson, Rio, Daly, Gordon Hill, me, Charlie Jord, Billy Hughes. We got some great players in there. But Tommy Dock were buying and selling. So I, I'd call that a, a bad management because. He'd done well at Man United, but it had affected him. And you could tell it had affected him at the club because, you know, he'd never really put his heart and soul in. When you, when you, when you look at that team, that's a team what should be knocking on the door for the old first division title. Yeah. Uh, but he was, buying and selling, he was buying and selling players all the time. If you look at the players he bought when I was there in that short space of time, it must have been 20 or 30 players. I mean, Charlie George followed me straight down to Southampton. You know, you, you can't be selling players like Charlie George. Obviously, I was still a young lad coming through, had a bad injury, but some of these managers selling players, what were they getting out of it? None of us ever know. Ever know. But when I went and played with Jack, and I love Jack, Jack, Jack is brilliant for fans, you know, because he'd, he'd want to be in the pub, he'd put fans, he'd let fans come back on the, on the coach with us if they, if they spent the money at the weekend, we were playing down in places like Brighton and Exeter and all this, South Ends and all this great guy hadn't got a chip on his shoulder won a World Cup 
And I understand what he was trying to say, but I didn't like his way of playing football, you know, knocking it long and us chasing it. And it was an effect, it was effective way of playing, you know. But we never ran, we never won anything really big. Uh, we got up uh, from the third division, um, only just giving up, by the way. But my 23 goals did help us, but not just me. I mean, the team did well itself. Um, and I said to him, you know, if get these three players, we'll, we'll, we'll win this, champ, uh, this, sec this second division. Tell, he used to ask me about players, but he, then he told me to keep my nose out of it. So, But Jack's one of the best guys I've ever, ever... And funny. Absolutely mm -hmm. funny. Uh, and at times, it was funny, but he didn't realise it would be funny. You know, because he did forget people's names. And one of the funniest films I've ever seen was that Mike Bassett, England manager. And when I used to tell people, they used to laugh at me and say, no, nah, I don't believe that. It, sometimes he wouldn't read, he couldn't read the um, outs uh, assessment of the opposition. But it weren't, I mean, when you looked at it, because when we would pick it up, when he'd throw it down, it was like a doctor's writing. You wouldn't, it was like shorthand, you know what I mean? Mm. And so he'd written some things down and he got his sink packet out. Anyway, and he read from the sink packet, and obviously I'd start laughing, it set the lads off laughing. And when I used to say to some fans, they wouldn't believe it. But Mick McCarthy said about the same thing when yeah. he was with Ireland that he got a sink packet out and he, and, and he read from the sink packet. He'd, he'd, he'd try and get the, man, the guy who had been scouted to translate to him, so he'd write them down on a, on a sink packet, you know. Uh, so Jack didn't realize. At times when he was funny, but he was funny when he was funny and all, he was, he was funny. And he was mm. a great. And when, when I argued with him, Mark, he would, he never took that any further. He, he didn't hold grudges and nothing. So I didn't love Jack, but I hated the way we played. And I hate, because I want to I play football. So it's coaching. And, and when I look at players, when I look at Bielsa, what he's doing at Leeds and coaching, that's what I call proper coaching. If you, if you and some of the fans saw some of the coaching we had to we, there was there were poor coaching and it does sound bad but I, you know what what other way could I put it you know I said what came out of my mouth at the time and when I say bad in my opinion it was poor and it was bad but it, I didn't mean it to be oh it's an honourable man that type mm, of thing yeah. the coaching wasn't I just didn't think the coaching was good enough I'm not going to turn around and say you know it was good when it weren't. But Clough and, Clough and Kendall never worried about opposition. The, the training was always different. Uh, and you know you, could, you were learning from it. So when I say bad management, what I'm trying to say is, uh, bad managers, what I'm trying to say, bad coaching. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and not enjoying it when you go in. I mean, all footballers, it's your life. You, oh, there is money in the game. But if there's no money in the game, they would still play football, wouldn't they? True. Yeah, very true. You love football. When you're a footballer, you love it. Right? There'd be times when footballers going in to, tra to train will not like it. So that's what I mean by bad managers. Not that they were bad people. You know, it's bad coaching. Yeah. Well, back to the football. And we know you didn't quite fulfil your stated ambition in this interview, which was to help Sheffield Wednesday get back to the first division. But after that uh, ill-fated season at Sheffield United, uh, you did play again in the top flight with Everton, who were emerging as the main challengers to Liverpool for silverware in the mid-80s. Uh, you've already mentioned Howard Kendall and, and, and his 
coaching qualities. Um, but you were sort of on the fringes of that great side as they were becoming successful, which I assume must have been really frustrating, although it was probably a really good time to be there. And of course, you, you, I'm, I'm sure you did win, actually get a championship medal in 85. Is that right? Yes, I did. I did. Yeah. But when I went to Everton, when I went to Everton, uh, I nearly went to Man United. The deal was practically done, but Reg really, Arsenal came in for me and um, it put a block on both their two moves and I finished up signing back for Everton because I went on loan. Mm. And when I looked at the team, it was a fantastic team, but they were, they were down to about 13,000 people yeah. and they were, whatever they were doing, it just weren't coming off. Whatever they did, what you know, uh, and he signed five players, what had not had not worked out for him. I would, then I came along. I, Trevor Ross went back, uh, came to Sheffield United, and I went to to Everton. My first game against Birmingham, it was a, a, a nil-nil draw, but it wasn't a boring draw, a nil-nil draw. You know, it was one of them games where you know we should have won it. We, we beat Ipswich. Uh, we got a good result at West Brom. Uh, we beat Forest. Uh, we beat Luton five, and we lost to Tottenham. Uh, but the gates had gone from thirteen thousand to twenty-seven thousand, and we took off. We started to really do well. Um, we couldn't agree on uh, on my um, salary, and now he said to me, "Do you want to play third division football, or do you want to play first division?" I said, "Don't make a difference to me. I want to go play at Halifax." And I got up, walked out, and I got a, a right load of abuse from 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 Howard about. To call him a greedy kid, I weren't greedy. It wasn't a lot of money I was asking for, but I weren't going to leave the money I was getting at Sheffield United just to go and play first division football. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, then Man United and Arsenal came in for me. And I was definitely going to sign for Man United. And Ron Atkinson had given a specific date. It was a Saturday. I know it was a Saturday through Norman Wynn. I mean, I don't think Norman's with us anymore now. He used to work for the Sunday People. And Norman uh, had phoned me up. Ron Atkinson asked him, you know, don't want to go play for Man United Arsenal came in so they wanted more money they finished up signing uh, Arthur Graham he finished up going there Arsenal signed who they who they, they went and bought, bought a wing I don't know I can't remember who it was now really but and then I went and signed for Howard uh, back for Everton um, and I got injured on my first game against West Brom mm. and they were still having a bad time right after that we'd, we'd, we'd taken off really uh, and then I got injured against West Brom. And I remember um, Howard was going to sell Peter Reid to Burnley. I, I had to go up and see Howard about my injury, my thigh injury, pulled a thigh because I was out for six months. Uh, and they rushed me back to play in the semi-final of the FA Cup. But even then, I couldn't bide my time about being patient and, and working. Well, I always worked hard. But just waiting for me time to come. And I, I, I really came out of the manager's office and I saw him. He got tears in his eyes. I said, what's up? He says, he's had an offer from Burnley for £60,000. And he said, I can go if I want to go. I said, I told him, I said, you don't have to go. I said, look, this is a great team. This really, it's, it's going to turn out well here. Don't worry about it. Anyway, he didn't go. And I went into the office and I said to him, I said, he was our best player at Birmingham at Wolves. Uh, and he left him out for one of the games. I said, he's been our best player, really. Right? I said, you'd be mad to sell him. And I remember us playing Liverpool. And I said to him, why, would we, why should we be frightened of Liverpool? That why should we be frightened of Liverpool? Yes, and every player will tell you, I'm not, frightened of it. I'm not bothered what anybody's won. 
I am not bothered to message George. But when I'm playing against them, we have to try and beat them back. If we get, people are fearful of playing against that team, I'm not, never have been. And that's how I am. And I said to Howard, we've got Trevor Stevens, we've got Andy, we've got Inchi, we've got Sharpie, we've got Sheets. These are all great players. Reedy Brace, right? I said, the back four then, I mean, Mark Higgins were injured. So it were uh, Mountfield, Ratcliffe, uh, Bales and um, Van Dinell. We got the best goalkeeper around in the world at that time, in Neville Southall and Gabby Stephen. Every one of these could play football. I said, why don't you play? Take the fear away from it. They beat Liverpool that Saturday. So he didn't tell Peter Reid. They beat Liverpool that Saturday by going out and attacking him. Right? I mean, everybody went on about the Oxford game. And yes, it, it was a big... Because if, if they lose that game, if they lose the Oxford game, they, there was a silly back pass and Inchi nipped in and scored. And they got a result down there. And then they beat them up, 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 up at Goodison Park. But that Everton game, when they beat Liverpool, for me, that was the turning point of it all. Well, you have to put the... You, you do have to put the Oxford game because if they get beat at Oxford, does I would get the sack? It's... Another hypothetical question. So, but I played. I played in the semi-final, and then I uh, the FA Cup. I played far too many games in the build-up to that, trying to get me fit. And I played again on the Monday or the Tuesday at Norwich after the semi-final of the FA Cup. I pulled an hamstring because obviously my legs. I didn't play for. I hadn't played for six months and played quick games in short in a short period of time. I missed the cup final start again the next season it sets off with the same season so frustrating not getting in the team but the team are winning and I understand it but I I mean I'm not saying I should be in the team before Sheeds or Trevor Stephen I always used to say to a manager I never went in and said I should be in the team before um, Trevor Stevens or Sheeds I went in and said are you playing me no why are you not playing me well they're playing they're playing well Terry you know just you buy your team Andy Gray did it when didn't you got injured because Andy weren't playing and he was frustrated but I, I, I one of those players what would sit on the bench I said if you're not going to play me I'll go play at Halifax he didn't bother me because I just love football I love playing football and so the, at times as a young boy childish impatient um, but I did play for two clubs and help because I regardless what anybody says I was a big influence at, at, in the dressing room and on the ball, and it, it got the confidence back with the, with the, with the players. Uh, and Forrest went on to win things, and Everett went on to win things, and I was a part of it. But the injuries was a major player in me because who's to say? Nobody knows really whether I'd have gone on to do bigger and better things. Um, even though, or even though I always wanted to play for my club, Sheffield Wednesday, and I knew I would play for them. Even that didn't do me any favours playing third division football because. You know, you've had at limelight. You've got to be in the Premier League or the old first division when I was playing to yeah. get... When I said the limelight, the recognition, that's the word I'm looking for. The recognition uh, that it was going to stand up. But I can I can also say that Jimmy Greaves came to me personally and said to me, what a player you were. Duncan McKenzie said the same thing. Uh, Morrissey at Everton, another one. Uh, George Best came and shook me hand and said to me, what a great player you're going to be. You know, so... There's plenty of players in Storymore. All these people have come to me. Norman Hunter all said to me what a player I was. So when I look at that, I'll take that in football. 
and bringing Clough. He always thought I was going to be the bee's knees in football, so I'll take that in football if I missed out on the major major trophies. Yeah, and of course you do, you, you do have that medal. To, and there's not many people around who've, who've got a championship winner's medal, so there's always that. And and you said it early on. What other player has been bought by the best five top managers? And by the way, Donnell tried to buy me at Arsenal. And Ron Atkinson at Man United. So you would have had the seven top people in football bought me. Right? And as Jack once said, not, not one of them questions his ability. is a funny sort of lad to handle because I wanted to win in training and things like that. So... I'll take that. I'll take that from football. Yeah. Well, you took in a number of other clubs after your stint at Everton, including a short spell in Greece with Panionios before you hung up your boots in 1987. So, Terry, what happened to you after you packed in playing uh, and what are you up to these days? Well, I was 31 when I, when I packed in with really bad knees. And, I mean, Sunderland, I did, I did that for a favour for my dad because I didn't like McMahon. I mean, I, I didn't want to... I'm not saying I didn't like him. I didn't like how we chat people and I weren't going to go there um, but it was my dad who told me look you're not playing for him you're playing for Sunderland Huddersfield I'd had a good year there but the, the thing with Huddersfield with Mick Books and he said we need to stay in the first division and Grimsby and Chesterfield and those little things Hull, I were doing them a favour when, when I got really bad knees mm. so I had to pack in at 31 I was never a drinker so drink I always looked after my body and I was always a good good trainer uh, my friend was in pallets and I went into the pallet I went into the pallet trade finished up buying a transport cafe and then I sold the transport cafe um, with his houses on that piece of land now but I got ripped off by a bad solicitor uh, made a mistake in, in the contract which cost, it cost me four and a half million quid so I uh, that's what I did when I came out of football I went to Ghoul and did really well at Ghoul Town as a manager Um Played nine games, won eight, drew one. I had £750 budget. The wages I kept down to 400 and I, and I gave, I kept, so the other 350 quid I gave back to the club. So it went in, I sold a player to Wigan for 5,000. I sold in Samson to Southern for 8,000, made them a few quid. And then the manager, the owner, tell me to, we've got to get rid of players because he'd give them a bonus system and he couldn't afford to pay the players. I said, how do you mean you can't afford to pay the players? He said, well, I didn't expect us winning these matches. I said, I asked you if we could go, if, if, we, if, we, if we were strong enough to go up, financial-wise, right? And so I walked out on that, went to Mosley for a month, but Sammy McElroy told me, don't go there, Terry, they're having a nightmare, they were losing six and sevens. So after that, I walked away from football and um, I bought the transport cafe, and that's what I did up to 2000. Um, so I just go and I did a little bit of coaching when, when I had my son Jock at Doncaster and a bit of Leeds but nothing now I just just go and watch him play but he hasn't played for, he hasn't played for nine months because of the Covid and he had an injury so I haven't seen him play now for, for nine months so that all I'm doing now is just putting my feet up cleaning, washing, ironing I'm doing um, the housework that type of thing Oh well that's good keep him busy um, Yeah If uh, so if we offers you the opportunity to go back in time and give out some advice to the young Terry Curran from, from this interview, round about 1981, 82, uh, what would it be? Well, it's got to be, be uh, don't be impatient. 
like I were at Forest. The best manager in, in, in the, well, one of the best managers in the country, one of the best managers in the world, because, I mean, I do like Bill Shankly and Bob Perry. They, they were great. They were successful in their day. Um, keep working hard. Never give up. Don't argue for sake of arguing, even if you think that you're right. You know, don't change your way of playing. But if you do get a bad injury or your face doesn't fit with the manager, keep working hard because people do prove their managers wrong. And that's all you need to do. Fantastic. Well, Terry, we're going to bring the curtain down on this episode here. Um, and I've got to thank you because it's been a really entertaining uh, speaking to you today. Uh, so thanks so much for coming on to the podcast and letting us jog your memory about this sh- uh, shoot interview and, uh, and the rest of your playing career. Thanks, Mark. You can follow Terry on Twitter at TerryCurran underscore 11 uh, and catch up with him on his regular podcast at Curran View. Thanks for listening to What Happened to You. You can find us across all the main podcast platforms, so please don't forget to subscribe. For updates about future guests and new episodes, follow us on Twitter at WHTYPod. For extra content related to what happened to you, including the original interviews that inspired this episode, visit our friends The Set Pieces at www.thesetpieces.com and follow them on Twitter at The Set Pieces. We'll be back again soon, so until next time, goodbye.